We are opening the Word of God this evening to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Mark, chapter 15. And we'll begin reading at verse 51 and read through verse, sorry, begin reading at verse 15, Mark 15, verse 15, and we'll read through verse 41. Mark 15 at verse 15. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hill called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band, and they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed, and they did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, and put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come. To take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him 
unto Jerusalem. We read this far in the holy and inspired word of God. This evening we're going to look at verse 38. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Accompanying the death of the Savior were four miracles, four wonders. When we call them wonders, we mean that they are divine interventions, something that God causes to happen that calls attention, calls our attention to it. And they are signs, signs and wonders, because the signs point to and teach us something about what's happening. And these four miracles, these four wonders, at the moment of the death of Jesus Christ, each are God's commentary on the cross and the suffering of Christ. There was first the darkness of Calvary from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, a sign of the infinite wrath of God, which he poured out in, on his Son. Then there was also the sign of the great earthquake, again a sign of judgment, but also a sign that God was shaking things up so that they would be different beyond the cross than they were before, and that especially in the gospel going out to the Gentiles. A third sign was the sign of resurrection appearances. We read about this in Matthew chapter 27. Graves were opened and saints came out of those graves and appeared to their friends and their family in Jerusalem before finally being caught up to heaven at the time of Jesus' own ascension. Tonight we look at this sign, the sign of the rending of the veil. The veil was a heavy curtain. And that it was rent means this, that it was torn apart. The veil was rent. And this was a sign of what Jesus accomplished by his death on the cross. That's what God is teaching us, a sign of fulfillment. Mark here, together with Matthew and Luke, records this event and records specifically the timing of this event, both Mark, both Mark and Matthew tell us that when Jesus had cried with a loud voice and given up the ghost, that then the veil of the temple was rent in two. Luke tells us what Jesus cried with a loud voice, his final word from the cross, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And at that moment, as Jesus commanded his soul from his body. The veil of the temple was rent in two. This happened at the ninth hour, immediately at the end of the darkness. And that's important for us as we consider this tonight as well. So let's consider the rending of the veil. Notice with me first the miracle, second the significance, and then third the comfort, the rending of the veil. We want first to talk about the miracle of the rending of the veil. Matthew begins in Matthew 27 verse 51 describing this event this way, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. And behold, he means stop, consider, stand back, look. Here's something marvelous that God has done. The veil of the temple was rent. 
All the events of the death and the suffering of Jesus Christ are told from the point of view of where the Savior is. And that's true here at this point, too. He's there on Golgotha. There's darkness over all the land, and we hear him crying from the darkness. And then the darkness is lifted, and he cries with a loud voice. But this verse that we consider tonight moves our attention from Golgotha and the cross back to the temple and to what's going on at the temple. This was a very busy time in Jerusalem, probably the busiest season and weekend of the whole year in the Jewish calendar, the Passover weekend. Many were there in Jerusalem for their yearly visit, probably some of them. This would have been their first time they had ever been in Jerusalem. And having on the previous day, the Thursday, celebrated the Passover, they would have come to the temple on Friday to pray, to give, and to sacrifice in gratitude. The temple at this time was Herod's temple, a massive complex as big as 10 football fields, and thousands of people must have filed in and filled the temple grounds on this day. And the priests would also have all been there on duty because so many were coming with animals for sacrifice. In the center of this complex was the temple proper, And I want you tonight to think of this as a journey, as it were, into the temple. When you first entered into the temple proper, you came into what was called the outer court, or sometimes called the court of the Gentiles, and here people would come to pray and to give, and the Gentiles and the women were stopped in this court. They couldn't go beyond this. But after this court, there was a stairway which was in a curve that went up several steps to a a series of doors that were the opening to the main entrance of the temple. Only boys over 12 years old, accompanied by their fathers, could go, uh, men and boys, could go into the temple proper. And once you came through the doors of the temple, you were in what was called the second main court, the court of the Israelites. This court was something like a long viewing deck from which you could watch the priests busy with their work. And so the men and the boys would come through those doors and stand around and watch. And perhaps they watched the sacrifice that they had given to a priest being offered by that priest. The animals would come in from, from one side, be slain, and then be burned And thousands and thousands of them would be burned and killed in this way. So it was a bustling place of activity with the priests doing their work. And then after the sacrifice had been made, oftentimes the priest would bring some of the meat now cooked to those men and boys that were in the temple. So we're into the second main room in the temple. But beyond this second main room, the court of the Israelites, were two other rooms. First, the holy place or the sanctuary, and then beyond that, the most holy place or the holy of holies. In the sanctuary, there were a few items, the table, the lampstand, and the golden altar. The sanctuary was behind a series of curtains, And twice in the day, 
Different priests would go in there for the daily ministration. This is what Zacharias was doing when uh, the angel appeared to him and told him that he, he and his wife Elizabeth would have a son. And they would go in on the daily ministration to offer incense, to arrange the showbread, and to keep the lanterns filled with oil. So this was only accessible by priests and only twice a day by lot. But then at the back of this sanctuary was one more room, and this one was behind another veil, and this was the Holy of Holies. This room was 30 feet tall. It was in the shape of a 30-foot cube, and so it stood high in the center of the temple complex, and the, the top of it would have been able would have been visible to those outside. Originally, in the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple, this Holy of Holies, the most holy place, contained the Ark of the Covenant, in which were Aaron's rod that budded, and the the manna, and the table of the law. On top of the Ark was the mercy seat, where the priest would come once a year to sprinkle the blood on the great day of atonement. And then above the ark stood two large cherubim, golden angels with their wings spread out that stood 15 feet tall on either side of where the ark was placed. And they looked down towards the mercy seat. Everything in that holy of holies was hidden behind that massive, thick, heavy curtain called the veil. And the holy place represented with the ark there and the mercy seat there and also at some points in Israel's history the shining Shekinah cloud of glory. The holy place represented the dwelling place of the Most High that the covenant God came and lived with his people. Now I've described all this partly to set the scene so that you can put yourself there in the temple on that day when the veil was rent, but also to explain the restricted access into the temple and especially into what was behind the veil. As we go into the temple, more and more people are excluded from coming before God and into his presence. Only one day a year was one of the priests, the high priest, permitted to go into that most holy place. And this really points to the significance of the veil. The veil was a wall or a barrier between the people and God. And it was a wall and barrier from a human point of view on account of sin, man's sin separating him from God because man could not stand before God. And this curtain was also a picture from God's point of view to us of the holiness of God. God saying, I'm holy, don't come near me. You remember at Mount Sinai when God came down on the mountain and they had to set borders around the mountain and they may touch the mountain. Or you remember that when the ark was moved and carried, they had to stand back at least 200 cubits from the ark because it was representative of the holiness and the presence of God. And all through the Old Testament, there was this reminder in the temple You cannot come 
before God. You can only come by a representative, and you can only come through the blood of sacrifice. And the best that the people could do was watch and imagine what it would be to go into the holy presence of God. Now, at the end of the darkness, on the day of Jesus' death, at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, when Jesus cried out with a loud voice and gave up the ghost, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. This was not just a small tear, but the idea is that it was left in shreds, left hanging in shreds so that you could see right in, right past the veil, into the most holy place. People were able to see what never they had seen before. Those massive cherubim. This was a miracle, a miraculous event. It was not simply the result of the earthquake. The earthquake followed this, actually. If you read the accounts, there was the rending of the veil and then a great earthquake. This was torn, this veil was from the top to the bottom, not something that man could do. He would tear it from the bottom to the top. And what's, what's most important here for us to see is the, the timing of this, the perfect timing of this. Because in the temple, right at that moment... The ninth hour, three in the afternoon, was the time of the evening sacrifices. So thousands of priests at this moment were readying themselves to slay the sacrifices. And people would have been looking on, waiting for that moment of the evening sacrifice. And then suddenly, before their eyes... The veil of the temple was rent and then followed very quickly an earthquake. And God, as it were, shook Jerusalem, shook the temple to tell them that this was done. You can imagine mayhem in the temple. The, the Jewish system of worship was was being challenged, as it were, and fulfilled in this very moment. And the priests must have really wondered what was going on. An amazing miracle. The significance of it is, first of all, this, that the obstacle of sin that keeps us from the holy God has been removed. The wall has been torn down. Something that the Old Testament sacrifices could never do was accomplished in a moment when Jesus died on the cross. The Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices, Hebrews 10 verse 4 tell us, could never satisfy for sin. And so there was always this wall, this barrier between God and His people. But now, in a moment... God is saying, we're done with the priests and the sacrifices. He's saying to them, stop, no more. 
the fulfillment has come. It's important for us to see that God set up the whole Levitical sacrificial system and the priests and the sacrifices and the temple and all these things as visual demonstrations that the only way to come to Him was through blood sacrifice and through death. But at the same time, it had to be repeated over and over again because those sacrifices never brought the people truly into the presence of God. They simply stood and watched as a priest went into the presence of God in their place once a year. And then he also had to make sacrifice for his own sins. So it was always a reminder, you can't come into the holy presence of God. But I say all of that was a visual demonstration. And the book of Hebrews especially helps us to see this. In Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 6, we read this. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. That was the daily ministration. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people, And then the Holy Ghost, thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as yet the first tabernacle was still standing. This was a figure for the time then present. And you understand what the Scriptures are telling us. God, the Holy Spirit, was teaching by the temple by the sacrifices, by the curtains, by the veil, by the repetition of all these things through the centuries, over and over again. That man could not come into the presence of God on his own. But now in the rending of the veil, God says, there's a change. There's a change. A fulfillment. And he really, we could say, preaches the gospel of the cross in the temple itself. The true sacrifice that can pay for sin has now been made. Hebrews 10 calls the flesh of Jesus the veil. The veil is his flesh. And in his flesh he took our sins in his body, which was torn and broken in death. The barrier of sin was removed and the payment made. And so God says here to the priest, stop. No more. Not necessary. And to the people, don't look at the priests. Don't look on the sacrifices. But look to Jesus, their fulfillment. If we turn to the book of Acts, there is a beautiful follow-up passage to the rending of the veil in the temple. And it's this. Acts 6, verse 7, The word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. A great company of the priests who were there on that day, who witnessed the rending of the veil, who worked in the temple, who made sacrifices, They were added to the church. They believed and were obedient to the faith. How foolish to go back to priesthoods 
and sacrifices. To, as the Roman church does, see the sacrament as a continual sacrifice. To say that the death of Jesus Christ has not paid for sin. To say that the veil that separates us from God has not yet been removed. What an affront to the good news of the gospel in the rent veil. Christ has removed the veil. He's fulfilled it. And that means, as far as the significance of this event is concerned, in the second place, that means that we, New Testament believers, have open, unlimited, unfettered access to God Himself. We don't come anymore into a temple to worship God. We're not stopped at some point as regards our access unto God. We don't come through sacrifices and blood. We don't need a priest to represent us and take our place. But the veil is removed. The way is open for us to come right into the presence, the holy presence of God Himself. And again, the book of Hebrews helps us with this. In Hebrews 10, verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We have boldness to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which is consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the household of God, let us draw near. We have access to God. And the the thing that's emphasized here in Hebrews chapter 10 is the privilege and the confidence that we can have in the blood of Jesus Christ to come before God. Jesus himself teaches us that we can have this confidence when he teaches us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven. And Jesus himself is the way described here as the new and the living way. I suppose you could have gone into the temple and behind the curtain in the Old Testament. But it would have meant death. But now we have a new and a living way through Jesus Christ. And so we should come. Maybe you've seen pictures of when the Berlin Wall in 1989 was torn down and the people flooded from east to west to enjoy the things that they had been missing for so many decades, to catch up with friends and family, and they rushed through the breach in the wall, and our response should be something similar to that. And that's what Hebrews 10 is describing when it says, let us draw near, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Let's come to God through Jesus Christ and through His blood. He will receive us. That's the point. Are you weighed down with the guilt of sin on your conscience? Do you have a fierce struggle with temptation in your life? Do you have a burden that you bear that's too heavy for you? Come, believing in Christ, to the Father. Third, the rending of the veil means that we have access to God not only, but also that God comes to us. In a sense, we might say in the Old Testament, behind the veil, God, as it were, 
shut himself away from the people. And as he chose to live in the tabernacle and in the temple in Israel, he shut himself up or he excluded himself with Israel in the promised land. But now when the veil of the temple is rent, God, as it were, comes out of the temple and goes forth with the word of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this is exactly what Jesus teaches that Samaritan woman at the well. She says, you worship in Jerusalem, we worship at Mount Gerizim. Which one's right? And Jesus says, the time is coming, yea, now is, that God will receive to worship with him not just people from one nation or ethnicity, not people who come just in one place, but those who worship him in spirit and in truth, not a geographic or an ethnic people, not a priestly system. But he'll go out with the gospel to the ends of the earth so that people can worship him everywhere. And that's what the rending of the veil is. It's a, we, should, we, we could say a shaking up not only of the Jewish sacrificial uh, things and, and ways of worship, But it teaches us that God is going to operate differently now in the New Testament. We see that immediately in response to the earthquake when the centurion who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus, a Gentile, said this, Truly, this was the Son of God. And he worshipped him. Then fourth... The significance of the rent veil is this, that it teaches us something about heaven. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens and come down. And the the holy place in the temple, the most holy place, represented God's dwelling place. Only in pictures. It wasn't really God's dwelling place. God's dwelling place is really a place made without hands. And that's where Jesus went in his ascension. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24, Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He's gone into heaven itself. And he's the way to the Father, the only way to the Father. And he's gone there as our representative, not only as our intercessor, but he's there preparing a place for us. And he tells us, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there ye may may be also. And if we look at the Old Testament, we see that the descriptions of heaven are in figures, in pictures. But now in the New Testament, we know that it's Christ with his people dwelling in the presence of God himself. And Christ has opened the way for all who come to him and through him in faith to God. And so the book of Hebrews tells us, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. We have a high priest touched with the feeling of our infirmities. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So let's draw near with true hearts to God in the heavens. The veil rent 
was a sign of the accomplished work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. So much about what happened on Calvary points to that very fact. The fact that Jesus cried out from the darkness, I thirst, expressing there the bitter anguish and the torments of hell. The fact that Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished, expressing that his work was accomplished. The fact that he cried out that God had forsaken him, all pointing to the fact that he accomplished, he finished the work that he came to do. That's the good news of the rending of the veil as well. And it's a wonderful comfort and strength for us in life and in death. The price for sin has been paid. We can be assured of our justification, believing in Jesus Christ. And that means also that the curse of God is removed from all of our life so that whatever trials and troubles we might have in the circumstances of our life, these are not expressions of the wrath of God against us and are not on account of our sin, but the Father in faithfulness afflicts us. And He's working in all these things not to drive us from His presence, but to draw us closer to Himself and to fit us for heaven when we will be with Him in that tabernacle not made with hands. And so in life and in death, we have comfort in the rent veil. When we come to death, Satan will tempt us there most with doubt. But then we have to remember that death itself is something like this rent veil, the last curtain that we go through before we come into the glorious presence of God Himself. Then sin will be abolished, and then we will be made perfect to dwell, fit to dwell in the presence of God Himself. And so we think of the the typology, the picture in the temple. And we can turn to Revelation chapter 21, and there it's put this way, that the tabernacle of God will be with men, and I will dwell with them and be their God, and they shall be my people. That glorious fellowship, which will be ours in heaven, was accomplished by Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. When he did something that could never be done by the sacrifices and the priests of the Old Testament, when he fulfilled all righteousness, when he paid the price in full for our sins, and when he brought us through that into the very presence of God Himself. And so today we rejoice in the good news of, we could say, not just the rent veil or the torn curtain, but heaven opened to us so that we can come boldly to the Father through Jesus Christ. And the hope that we will be in that place, in perfection, with all God's people, in the presence of God. Amen.
Father, we're thankful for the good news of the the fulfillment of all the types and shadows of the Old Testament in the death of the Savior. We're thankful for what He accomplished. And we're thankful that He brings us into Thy presence and that we have access through Him. Help us, Father, to come and to draw near, not with fear, but to come and to draw near with boldness because we have access through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.